0: I'm not awake. How are we doing? Wow, that wasn't really convincing though, I gotta say. It's early, right? It's early, yeah, I get it. In all seriousness, how are you doing? It's been it's been a rough couple of months for some folks. Yeah. And I like when I meet people to ask how they're doing because it has been rough. It's been a challenge for a lot of folks. I work in a hospital setting, and we get to see face-to-face this COVID crisis that everybody, there's so much, so much confusion out there about this thing, and so much that's not understood about it, but uh, I saw a man die from it, 56 years old, just a young man. Uh, he had all kinds of comorbidities, which didn't help him at all, but he made a conscious decision not to receive, not to be intubated, and that brought about his death. His lungs were shot. Had another man just on Friday pass away. Wife passed away two days previous. Family, the whole family's got COVID-19. Yeah, it's, it's a very real thing, and it's a very scary thing, and, and we get to, to li- live and breathe it in the hospital setting on a daily basis and thankful that the Lord is good. And that he does provide protection and encouragement. But he also gives us what we call sanctified wisdom. To use the tools that are, are there for us to help us get through this time. Most of all, he gives us the body of Christ to encourage us and to pray with us. And so it's, this is the first time we've been back in church since February or since March. Whenever the, the crisis, the pandemic thing kicked off. I guess the first Sunday of March we were in church. Uh, so this is the first Sunday we've been back in church and it's it's kind of fun to be back and gather with God's people and to, to sing together and to pray together and to have children's stories together. Remember those days. I, I'm with you there. You feel too old for this kind of thing? I get it. I get it. But you're not. Because especially as a guy, we're always kids. When you get married, you'll find that out real quick. Your wife will keep calling you a kid. Well, we are going to look at a passage that is one of my favorite passages because it brings a sense of, of hope and of, of uh, deep forgiveness, deep peace. We're going to be looking at John chapter 8. And if you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn over there. This is a, It's a well-known story. We're all familiar with it. But uh, it's just one that we need to remind it of from time to time, just for our own encouragement's sake, to know that God has not forgotten us. God has not left us alone. God is with us. And uh, God knows us. And sometimes my greatest marvel is the fact that I know that God knows me, and I know me, and God still loves me. And I, I really don't get that sometimes. But that's what the gospel of second chances is all about. That's what grace is all about, that even though he knows us intimately, he can still love us, and sometimes we can't love ourselves, and we can't forgive ourselves, and uh, he still can do that for us. So, I think we've, we, we haven't met formally, you've seen me on video, and I'm horrible on video, I'm not, I don't know if I'm any better live or, or whatever, but I know I'm horrible on video, so bear with me. Calvin and Hobbes fans, any Calvin and Hobbes fans here? I guess i got to move this thing. Ah, look at that. Calvin and Hobbes. Do we remember Calvin and Hobbes? All right. It's all guys that are answering. What's wrong? Women, don't you like Calvin and Hobbes? No? (laughs) What? Calvin, what's that? Man. Calvin and Hobbes are walking along, and Calvin says, you know what the problem is with the universe? Hobbes responds, what? Calvin answers, there's no toll-free customer service hotline for complaints. That's why things don't get fixed. If the universe had any decent management, we'd get a full refund if we weren't completely satisfied. Hobbes objects. But hey, the universe is free. To which Calvin retorts, see, that's another thing. They should have a cover charge and keep it all a riffraff. You ever feel like that? The riffraff? If we're honest, many of us wish that the riffraff would just go away or that they be punished. We tend to be pretty tough on the people when they do things that bother us. Have you found these last months to be challenging? Not just because of COVID, but because of all the civil unrest. Have you found that to be challenging in your own soul, in your own attitudes, your own heart? We clamor for God's justice to be poured out on others while we ourselves long for God's grace. We're quick to point the fingers and to judge and condemn, but we don't look within. It's it's like the haughty woman in London who asked the well-known painter to do her portrait. And she added, and see that the painting does me justice. Taking one look at the hard features of the brash woman's face, the painter observed, Madam, what you need is not justice but mercy and grace. On Wednesday, I think it was, a lady was brought into the hospital, emergency department. Um, I was called down as part of my responsibilities as a hospital chaplain. When codes are called, when uh, traumas are called, this was a trauma, we're called to be there to be with the family just to support them during that difficult time. And so I came in and I found the husband. He was sitting in the family room just beside himself. And the doctor hadn't yet been in to speak with him, so I came in with the doctor, and he kind of shared what had happened to this lady. She had tried to hang herself and had almost succeeded. 45-year-old woman, beautiful, fitness instructor, uh, but she had gone through breast cancer, had both had a double mastectomy, and then suffered shingles That so her face was scarred from the shingles, and uh, I think it was just too much for her to handle. And uh, the husband had brought her into the emergency department on Thursday, hoping to get some help for her, because he could see that she was heading down a path that was dark and difficult to come back from. And he brought her in Thursday. They questioned her, but they decided she she kept insisting she would not hurt herself. She was not a, a threat in any way, and, and they let her go home with the the provision that she would contact or they would contact uh, some behavioral health people to get some help for her. Uh, unfortunately, that was the long weekend, so it had to wait till Monday. So the husband says, "I promises I'll be with her the whole weekend. I will stand by her side. I will not let her out of my sight the whole weekend." And he didn't. He stayed with her the whole weekend. They, on the couch together, he just would not let her up his life. He didn't trust her. Monday morning, is Monday morning. Monday morning, he, or he gets up and, uh, okay, we're going to call the hospital. We're going to call these numbers. We're going to get the help that you need. Uh, so why don't you take a shower? I'll quickly take the dog out for a walk, and I'll come back, and then we'll go. Yeah, you're shaking your head. Because that's all it took. He said he was gone five to seven minutes maximum came back in, found her, she had hung herself. And uh, fortunately for her, she was able to be revived and brought into the emergency department, and it was touch and go for quite a while. And uh, she ended up in her intensive care unit on the ventilator, and uh, just a lot of questions, what was going to happen to her. On Wednesday, they extubated her, and she was breathing on her own. She was sitting up in bed, but very confused. And on Thursday, they moved her to our neurology floor and then she was to go to our behavioral floor after that. Trying to picture in my own mind what is going on in this woman's head. As she realizes what she had tried to do. What she had almost done. What she had done to her family. What she had put them through. And what she was going to feel like as she came through this and and came to grasp to, to with what all that she had that she had done. Uh, the story continues. I, I have not had a chance to see her again since that time. I'm hoping uh, next week to be able to, to get together with her again and just see how she's doing, what's going on with her. Uh, it's it's a complicated story all the way around. But this is a woman who is she's Catholic. Her husband described her just like she was an angel. Just never did anything wrong and was always there for everybody. And she was like she she was almost God. <laughs> And uh, I think he and she will quickly discover she is not God. And she is in desperate need of God. And she's in desperate need of a, a second chance. And she, God has given her a second chance at life. And I'm hoping that she will uh, take full advantage of that second chance. And So what we have here in John chapter 8 is this powerful story about second chances. Which clearly teaches that from the perspective of God's perfect holiness... We're all riffraff. Calvin and Hobbes kinda of have a skewed view of things, that they're just the, the everything else is riffraff. And maybe we have that view too. That everything and everybody else is riffraff, but we're not, because we go to church, we're God's people, we're we're good. We're all sinners who fall short of God's glory and desperately need not justice, but mercy and grace. So why don't we turn over to John chapter 8 and let's read this together. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn. He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. So we've got the scene. He's in the temple courts. People are gathered around him. They're excited. They're anticipating hearing something from the master. They've heard of him. They've heard him teach. Uh, He just doesn't... He teaches like nobody else teaches. None of their other religious leaders and teachers are anything like Jesus. So there they are gathered, anticipating hearing something from him. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus... Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin let him be the first to cast the stone. Now, we're not talking little pebbles. We're talking stones. Let him be the first to cast this stone at that woman for her adultery. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, At this time, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin you think that stone would hurt? You get enough of those cast at you, it's not just going to hurt you, it's going to kill you. So we have the scene, it's early in the morning, the sun having just come up. A multitude of people gathered around Jesus because they wanted to hear him teach. And Jesus is seated, which in that culture communicated authority. As the crowds continue to come into the temple court, then suddenly the arrogant religious leaders barge in and interrupt Jesus by dragging a woman in front of him. And the text says they made her stand in front of the group as they shouted out their charges against her. Can you imagine how she felt in that moment? She's in the temple court. People gathered around Jesus. And there she is paraded in and left to stand while the fingers are pointing. And the accusations are flying. And John tells us in verse 6 that this was all a setup. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 states that both the man and the woman, adulterers, were supposed to be stoned. So where was the guy? Why wasn't the man brought in? Was he part of the setup? How else? With these morality police have just known when to barge in and catch the woman. Lots of speculation in terms of the man. Was he part of the pharisaical group? And so they let him go. Was he somebody important in society? So they let him go? And it all fell on the woman? We're not told in the text, but lots to speculate. What it is, though, is a, is a clever trap, a clever setup. The law of Moses specifies death by stoning for adultery, yet Roman law forbids the Jews to carry out executions. If Jesus doesn't condemn the woman, he breaks the Jewish law. And if he condemns her, he breaks the Roman law. So as the text tells us, they're trying to trap him. What hypocrites. They accuse a woman of adultery as part of their scheme to commit murder. The Pharisees justify their hypocrisy in the same way that many of us do. We look at our sins as excusable while we get down on how other people live. Can you sense the tension here in the temple courts? Pharisees have come in. They've brought their accusations. The woman is standing there in all of her shame. Jesus is seated. The people Kind of like we would be looking back and forth, wondering, how's this going to play out? What's Jesus going to say? What's going to happen to the woman? The tension is mounting in that room. Look at the second half of verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Notice that Jesus doesn't answer their question in verse 6. Instead, as the text says, he bent down and started writing on the ground. And we don't know what he was writing because we're not told in the text, but it's kind of fun to speculate. What was he writing? Was he, as being as he's Jesus, he knows the hearts of men, he knows the hearts of all the people that were, the men that brought in this woman, so perhaps he's writing their sins because he knows their hearts. Perhaps, some speculate, he was writing the Ten Commandments on the ground. Something that would have been near and dear to these Pharisees. We don't know and we're not told This is the only time in the Gospels that we read Jesus writing something. That's intriguing. It had to be something important because it got their attention. In verse 7 we read that they kept on questioning him. The meaning here is that they continued asking obstinately. I mean, they persisted. They kept on going at him. Jesus, you're not saying anything. Jesus, you're being quiet here. Jesus, what about this woman? Jesus, we've got to do something about this. This is wrong. This is a sin. This woman has to die. And then Jesus straightens up, which gives a picture of strength, of force. And he says to them, wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall, in, 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 a fly in the room in that moment? Which of you, if any of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone and just be there to observe, have a little camera set up in the room there flashing on these men as they hear that question and they're not anticipating that question and all of a sudden they have to go, huh, hmm, we don't know what to do with this. He's turned the tables on us. We came in with this woman accusing her and now he's turning it on us. What do we do? Jesus upheld the standards of God's perfect holiness but made it clear that there was only one person present who could have judged that woman. Only one who was sinless. And with these words, Jesus made the religious leaders as uncomfortable as they had made this woman who was still in the middle of the group. I'm sure the leaders were stunned. They probably thought Jesus was going to let the woman go. But instead, he upholds the law of Moses. Adultery is sin. It violates marriage. It wrecks homes and injures innocent children. I want you to notice what Jesus does not say. You had better not throw stones at her. He doesn't say that. You'd better not throw stones. Rather, what he says was more like a command. Throw stones if you're sinless. Throw stones if you're sinless. When a person was deserving of stoning, he or she would be thrown into a pit. Then the person who witnessed the grievous sin would spit on the victim, pick up a stone, and throw it first. Can you see yourself doing that? There's that woman. She's in the pit. It's on you because you caught her. You got to spit on her and then you got to throw a stone at her. Could you do it? You know, many of us do it. We don't throw physical stones. But we throw attitudes. We throw words. We turn our back. We give a cold shoulder. We accuse. We lie about people. Isn't that the same thing? In God's eyes, in God's eyes it is. In effect, Jesus is saying to these men and to us, you're no better off than she is. Your hearts are filled with murder and hatred. Someone has said that if our inner thoughts were written on our foreheads, we would always wear a hat. That's probably very true. You know, I have found it very tough being on Facebook in these last month, month and a half. My, my friends are all divided with this Black Lives Matters and, and Blue Lives Matter and, and the whole tension of civil unrest in our, in our country. I have found it very difficult because I have good friends on both sides, committed believers on both sides, and i wonder where 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 does god fall in all of this and i always have to check my heart because it's so easy to fall into that trap of hating somebody or being disgusted with somebody because of what they've done or of looking at the protests and going well that's ridiculous they shouldn't be protesting I just remember when I was in Texas doing my residency and I walked down the hallway of the hospital down in the basement and there was this big black dude walking down the hallway ahead of me. And I'm like, he's big. He's big. Why is he here? What is he doing here? And so I kind of held back for a little bit just to watch him and he was heading down the hallway where I was heading and I was getting a little nervous about that. And then I saw him go into the room and I was going to go into it. I'm like, He's wearing a hat, so I can't see who he is. And I'm like, this is not right. So I walked down the hall, kind of poked my head in, and realized, oh, it's Johans. He's my friend. Big, burly, black dude. But I didn't recognize him. And so my heart went right away to maybe I should call security. I don't know what this guy's doing. It's so easy to fall into that trap. We have to constantly guard our hearts and our minds, and not slip into that judgment mode, not slip into that condemnation mode. I've never walked in his shoes. He told me stories of what it was like for him growing up in New Jersey, and his parents were well off, and he lived in a beautiful neighborhood, but because he was black, and he was driving a nice car, oof, there was something wrong with him. We got to pull him over. Happened many times to him. I've never lived that. I've never experienced that, but it gave me a, a when he told me that and other things, he gave me a, 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 just a, a deeper sense of understanding of what he and others go through. And I need to be careful. I need to guard my heart against that attitude because it's too easy to condemn without really understanding what's going on. So Jesus stoops down and he draws in the dust again. And against, I get the sense that no one's talked. I bet there was a kind of an eerie silence in that moment. And during this time of awkward quietness, conviction began to settle in on the hearts of these Pharisees. What was Jesus writing this time? Maybe just four words. Perhaps the words that were written once before by the finger of God in chapter 5 of the book of Daniel, which was translated to mean, you are weighed in the balance and found wanting." I don't know what he was writing but whatever he was writing had to be significant, significant enough for these men to kind of squirm, feel uncomfortable in their skin and quietly skulk out of there. Now, like the woman, the leaders have been caught in the act. Verse 9 says that they began to go away one at a time, the older ones first and they are finally convicted of their own sins. You know, it's always more comfortable to focus on another person's sin than it is to focus on my own. Isn't it? As they filed out with their shame on their faces, perhaps written on their foreheads, and they had to pull their hats down a little lower, they admitted that they were unable to judge others. Perhaps the older ones left first because they had committed more sins than the younger ones. Or maybe they were wiser and appreciated the wisdom of Jesus' response. But I love the last part of verse 9. <clears throat> Until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. I wonder what the woman was doing this whole time as she watches the Pharisees file out. And it's just her and Jesus left in the room. I wonder what's going on in her head. What's going to happen now? Jesus is the only one qualified to deliver judgment. You and I are not qualified to deliver judgment. The Pharisees were not qualified to deliver judgment. Only Jesus knows the heart. And he knows the experiences of life that we have walked through. I also find it interesting that the woman was still standing there. Have you ever thought of that before? She could have left with the others. They file out one door, she heads out the other door. Running, tail between her legs, boom, out the door. If they're going, I'm gone, I'm not a part of this. But she stays. At this point, we realize how little we know about this woman. Was she gentle and likable or harsh and obnoxious? As she stood in the midst of her accusers, was she softly sobbing the tears of a person crushed by her shame or was she defiantly glaring at those who dragged her into the temple? All we know is that she had been caught in a sin and was publicly paraded through the temple grounds. We don't even know if they threw a robe on her, if they dragged her in naked. They could have done that. What makes this story so beautiful is not the woman, but the way Jesus responds to the woman. How does Jesus treat sinners. How do you want him to treat you? How do I want him to treat me? With dignity. The leaders had treated her as an object, speaking about her in front of everyone. Jesus spoke to her. Speaking to her, he shows her that she has value that she has worth. Even in spite of whatever her sin might have been, this is a person of worth and of value, a person that matters to God. He didn't view her as an embarrassing failure or an irritating difficulty. He saw her as a person created in the image of God who possessed incredible worth. Friend, if you feel worthless today, remember that Jesus will always treat you with dignity. With compassion. The first compassionate act that Jesus did was to write on the ground. The scribes and Pharisees loudly proclaimed her sins. Jesus stooped down and wrote in the sand, and suddenly no one's looking at the woman. All eyes are on Jesus and what he's doing on the ground, what he's writing on the ground. By diverting the stares of the crowd from the sinner to the sinless one, Jesus gave her the precious gift of compassion with frankness. Some people have said that Jesus was too easy on, this, on sin in this grace encounter, but I want you to notice that Jesus confronted this woman with her root problem when he said, go now and leave your life of sin. Was she a prostitute? Perhaps she was. Perhaps she was a frequent adulterer. I don't know. I don't know her heart, but Jesus knew her heart. And Jesus got to the point right away. Go now, leave your life of sin. She already had been confronted and convicted by her sin. Now Jesus is talking straight with her. Christ followers are to leave sin to move on by following him with their whole hearts. He treated her with grace. This woman was condemned by the leaders and by her own sins, but because of the grace of Jesus, he looked at her and he said, then neither do I condemn you. Can you think of any more precious words to hear in that moment? You're standing there in your shame. You have been condemned and, and convicted by the, by the crowds and by the Pharisees. And you know your own heart that you have, what you have done is wrong. And you're condemned and convicted by yourself. And then Jesus looks at you and says, go now and leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you. Those are amazing words. How many of us condemn ourselves? I see it all the time in the hospital. Patients that come in, they have a religious background, they beat themselves up, they're condemning themselves. I'm trying to tell them about Jesus and his love for them and the fact there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and they don't get it. There's always something a little more I got to do, something a little more I got to do to earn God's favor. Something a little more i got to do for God to forgive me. No, Jesus did it all already. But they don't get it. And they continue on in self-condemnation. I'm so grateful for Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So grateful for Paul and his experiences in life and all that he went through, that he could get to that point through chapter 7 and then into chapter 8, verse 1, and realize there is therefore now no condemnation. I am not condemned by God. I am forgiven by God. He has poured out his grace upon me. And he invites me into to live in that grace. And he changes my story. You kept using that word story. This is the story of one woman. But this is our story. And how many of us have learned the story of Jesus supersedes our story and changes our story and gives us a hope and a future. And declares us Not condemned. I can't imagine what this woman must have felt in that moment when she hears Jesus say, I don't condemn you either. He treats this woman with hope. This woman needed hope for the future. The phrase, go now, literally means from this point forward. We're not looking back at that. From this point forward, we're moving ahead. The story begins anew from this point forward. We're leaving the old behind and we're pressing on into the new. Jesus wants to write a new story for your life. And Jesus will walk you into that story that he's writing for you. Jesus is forward-looking. Have you ever realized that? He's not past-focused. If he was past-focused, we'd all still be condemned. And there would be no hope for any of us. But Jesus looks forward because he invites us into a future and he leads us into a future as we allow him to do that. He's ready to give her a new life, a new identity, and the power to overcome sin. Jesus is not only interested in what we've done, but also in what we can become by his grace and the working of his spirit in our lives. He loves us too much to let us keep living the way we have been. He has something so much better for us if we'll allow him to lead us into that. Need a second chance? I don't know your heart. I don't know where you're at today. I know where I'm at today. (laughs) And I know that I need second, third, and fourth chances. And I know that God's grace is greater than my sin. And I know that God will lead me into, those, into that future that he has for me. Max Lucado writes in one of his books and describes when he and his family lived in Brazil as missionaries and they went into Rio de Janeiro and they visited that 90-foot tall... I've got a picture of it here. There it is. 90-foot tall, 1,320 tons of reinforced Brazilian tile. Positioned on a mountain a mile and one half above sea level. It's the famous Christ the Redeemer statue. Impressive to look at. No tourist comes to Rio without snaking up Corocovalo Mountain to see this looming monument. The head alone is nine feet tall. The wingspan from fingertip to fingertip is 63 feet. That's an impressive monument. While living in Rio, Max writes, I saw the statue dozens of times, but no one time was as impressive as the first. He says he was a college student spending a summer in Brazil. Except for scampers across the Mexican border, this was his first trip outside the continental U.S. And he had known of this monument only through National Geographic magazine. And he says he was to learn that no magazine can truly capture the splendor of Cristo Redentor, or Christ the Redeemer. Below me was real—seven Seven million people swarming on the lush green mountains that crashed into the bright blue Atlantic. And behind me was the Christ the Redeemer statue. As I looked at that towering edifice through my telephoto lens, two ironies caught my attention. I couldn't help but notice the blind eyes. You can't see it from here but they're kind of blind, lifeless eyes. Now, I know what you're thinking. All statues have blind eyes. Granted, you're right, they do. But it's as if the sculptor of this statue intended that the eyes be blind. There are no circles to suggest light. There are only little orphan any openings. And then he says, I lowered my camera to the waist. What kind of redeemer is this? Blind, eyes fixated on the horizon, refusing to see the mass of people at its feet. Then I saw a second irony, he writes. As I again raised my camera, I followed features downward, past the strong nose, past the prominent chin, past the neck. My focus came to rest on a cloak of the statue. On the outside of the cloak, there's a heart. A Valentine's heart. A simple heart. A stone heart. The unintended symbolism, he says, staggered me. What kind of redeemer is this? Made of stone, held together not by passion and love, but by concrete and mortar. What kind of redeemer is this? Blind eyes and a stony heart. And then he says, I've since learned the answer to my own question. What kind of redeemer is this? Exactly the kind of redeemer most people have. Sightless, heartless Redeemer. Redeemers without power. And that's not the Redeemer of the New Testament. Compare the blind Christ, he says, I saw unreal, to the compassionate one seen by the frightened woman early that morning in Jerusalem. Did she encounter a sightless, heartless Jesus? as she was being condemned? Or did she encounter one who loved her dearly, whose heart bled for her, who hurt for her in her circumstances, who saw her pain, saw beyond the pain? Who knows what brought her into that life that she was living? Things may have happened to her that brought her to that place. We don't know all that goes on in the life of people and what gets into that point. I, we have drug addicts come into the hospital all the time. We have homeless people come there all the time. Homeless vets. We have all kinds of people. And what brings them to that point, I don't know. And our staff gets so frustrated by them and so hardened because they're there day after day, time after time. And I look at them and I go, these are people that are dearly loved by God. They're created in His image. They have value and worth. Look beyond your frustration at the fact that they're there every week and look at them as Christ looks at them with, a heart, with eyes of compassion and a heart of compassion and a love that He wishes upon that He wants to change their lives. So the question for all of us this morning is, which Redeemer do we know? Do we know the, the sightless, heart of stone Redeemer? and we continue in condemnation and we continue to condemn ourselves or do we know the Christ that this woman encountered who had a heart of flesh and who had eyes of compassion and loved this woman. Which redeemer do you know? John writes in 1 John where are you? Go back. All right, it's not going back for me there, Matt. Technology. John writes in First John chapter 1, and he says this, If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. That's his promise. That's his promise to us. This Redeemer is among us this morning. Perhaps you've heard him whispering in your ear. He's been saying that he loves you. He's been saying, listen to these words from Jesus, come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest from your self condemnation. I'll give you rest from your guilt. I'll give you rest from your judgment that you feel you have to judge everybody that you come encounter with. I'll give you rest from that. I'll release you from all of that and I'll give you a new life and a new hope and a new direction. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Not as judge and convict but as friends how do you know Jesus do you know him as judge who continues to condemn you or do you know him as your friend who invites you into a relationship with him and who promises that if you confess your sins to him he will faithfully and continually forgive you and cleanse you let's pray Lord Jesus, we are grateful for stories like this. There are stories. We could very well be that woman. We don't perhaps get caught in the act of adultery, but (laughs) we do other things. Other things that you've already declared are worthy of death because that's what sin brings. Death, that's the punishment. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, you know our hearts here this morning, each one of us. You know where we stand in all of this. Meet us here. If we need to see you and meet you as that life-giving Savior who has a heart of passion and eyes of compassion, then meet us today in that way. If we've only known you as that heartless, lifeless Redeemer. Then meet us today. Change us. You invite us into a relationship with you that will be life-changing and will be eternal. Lord, lead us into that wherever we stand right now before you. Lead us into that new relationship with you where we can walk with you forever. Thank you for loving us enough to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.